The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. A proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina, I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by, I want to say CAP's managing editor, but no longer CAP Cobus. You are now the managing editor of the China Global South Project. A very good afternoon to you in Johannesburg. Thank you. Good afternoon. Well, as everybody may have noted, if you went to our website or you read our announcements over the past couple of weeks, uh, today, in fact, Friday, is the second day of us being the China Global South Project. We have transitioned from the China Africa Project, and we're going to start exploring more issues about what China is doing across the developing world and throughout the Global South, of course, still focusing a lot on Africa. This podcast on Fridays is not going to change. The China and Africa podcast will remain. However, there will be some new shows starting to pop up in the feed from Sri Lanka, from Tajikistan, from Brazil, and other parts of the world discussing what the Chinese are doing there. So keep an eye out for that. And our new website, ChinaGlobalSouth.com. Also, just very quickly before we get started, a very big thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. We really couldn't do this show without you, and we're just so grateful for your support. If you would like to support what we're doing and the work that we're doing as independent journalists, go to Patreon.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. Okay, Kobus, let's talk about the economic situation today in Africa. China, of course, is central to a lot of what's going on, but the situation is going from bad to worse in many parts of the continent. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has triggered what is becoming a global food crisis, not just in Africa, but throughout much of the developing world. Just over the past few days, here's some updates on what we're reading India has halted wheat exports. In Indonesia, once one of the world's largest suppliers of palm oil, they too have halted exports. Now again, that may not seem relevant to Africa, but what's happening is that more and more countries are stockpiling their own food. And for a continent like Africa that imports a bulk of its food supply, this is highly problematic. And this is causing problems now where a lot of countries relied on wheat imports from Ukraine and Russia Food prices in many parts of the continent are surging and shortages are spreading. In the Horn of Africa alone right now, 14 million people are on the brink of starvation. It is really just devastating to watch what's unfolding here. But let's just be very clear here, Kobus, that this isn't just a problem in the global south. And I was fascinated to read that an Ipsos Sky News survey found that a quarter of the population in Britain is now either skipping meals or shrinking portions of their of their meals due to rising food costs. And also in low-income communities in the United States, inflation is making things very, very difficult and food is also a problem there as well. But the situation in Africa is compounded by a number of other extenuating circumstances. There's, and this is just a short list here, but it's just to provide some context. The growing political instability in large swaths of the Sahel. In fact, there was just some more issues of attempted coups in Mali this week. Drought is now haunting much of southern Africa and along the Horn of Africa. Currency depreciation fueled by rising interest rates in the U.S. That's pulling back a lot of the dollar investment that used to go into emerging markets like in Africa is now again finding a safe haven in U.S. Treasury bonds and other equities. 
That is then now adding pressure on trade deficits and contributing to surging inflation, especially in places like Ghana. And then there is the issue of debt. A couple factoids here, Cobus, that I found which are just both alarming and absolutely fascinating at the same time. Consider this. Beginning July 1st, when Kenya's fiscal year starts, the Treasury is going to spend $1 billion a month to service its loan portfolio. They're doing $12 billion a year in the next fiscal year. And the bill is only going to go up. Treasury Secretary Yukur Yatani, he told reporters last week that they're going ahead with a billion-dollar euro bond offer just when yields are skyrocketing upwards. And that's going to make the cost of that debt very expensive. Plus, here's the worst part of all of it. And again, I don't necessarily blame them, but it's just a bad situation. They're going to use that new billion dollars, not for something productive that's going to generate income or revenue, something like infrastructure or education, things like that, that actually will will help the economy. What they're going to do is they're going to use it to plug budget holes. And that doesn't do anything for the economy except not make the hole bigger. And in Nigeria, the government last year spent 86% of all of the revenue that it collected on debt servicing. So think about this. That means that for every dollar that came into the treasury, only 14 cents was available to spend on healthcare, on education, on the military, on transportation, on everything else that the government funds. Okay, but to be sure, and I want to be very clear here, this is not happening in every African country. The continent is really big. There's a lot of diversity. South Africa, for example, where you are, only 20% of the revenue was on debt servicing. But the key thing here, Cobus, is that it's happening in enough places across the continent that it's really become a very worrisome trend. Yeah, it's it's extremely worrying. It's it's also tragic in in the sense that that in through no no fault of the continent itself, um you know, years and years of growth is being reversed. Um, and we're seeing, you know, so many people who managed to kind of make it out of poverty being pushed back into poverty by by these crises. And, you know, the fact that um, the fact that these governments are increasingly having to 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 borrow more money in order to just to just service the the, the debts they already borrowed. I mean, that, that's a familiar cycle in in some African countries, and many African countries have managed to kind of get themselves out of it, and to now see them kind of like slipping back into it is is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. But today, what we'd like to do is we don't want to dwell on the problems and the negatives. That's easy to do. And there's a lot to talk about there. And we've talked about that in a number of previous episodes. What we'd like to do is talk about solutions and to think about what can actually be done in a practical environment. So for that, we are thrilled to have on the program for the first time Magri Masamba, who is a Global China Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Boston University Global Development Policy Center. And she's also a postdoctoral fellow with the University of Pretoria's Center for Human Rights. Uh, by the way, her law degree focused on sovereign debt restructuring, human rights, and development in Africa. So she is really the ideal person to talk to us about this. A very good afternoon to you, Magali, and welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this for for a number of weeks because, again, of your experience. And you recently co-wrote 
a column together with Daniel Bradlow, who's a professor of African economic relations at the University of Pretoria. For regular listeners of the show, we've had Danny Bradlow on, on, on the podcast before, so I really recommend you go back into the archives and listen to that episode. But the two of you published this fantastic essay, and it was entitled Five Recommendations for Tackling the Sovereign Debt Challenge in Southern Africa. Before we get into your recommendations, and I'd like to kind of really go through them one by one, first, let's get your assessment of the current sovereign debt situation as you see it today in much of Africa. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to share um, about the issue of sovereign debt. And it's really an issue that I'm so passionate about, not just because of my research interests, but because for me, an African living in the African continent, the issue of sovereign debt is part of my lived experience. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to share about this. So from the research that Danny and I have been doing, we've come to the conclusion that the issue of Africa's debt distress or um, the debt landscape is probably one of the biggest challenges that the continent is facing today. Now, of course, um, the, it's, it's, it's clear that the COVID-19 pandemic, um, as, as you've also indicated, the, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, um, have really been one of uh, two of the main catalysts, at least most recently, to over-indebtedness. But it's been clear that African countries have faced challenges even before the pandemic. So, for example, um, as early as 2013, the World Bank did um, caution that uh, at least eight countries were at high risk of debt distress. So imagine after quite a lot of um, uh, multilateral programs that were aimed at helping African countries um, have a clean slate, if I can, if I can put it that way, which is the heavily indebted poor country program, the multilateral debt relief um, initiative. Again, African countries were showing signs of um, overborrowing, unsustainable debt, and and of course, this is this problem um, has been compounded during the COVID nineteen pandemic. So, as I mentioned, in 2013, we have eight countries that are at high risk of debt distress. In 2018, we have 18 countries, um, and 40% of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. That obviously raises concerns when we consider the fact that countries would then have to choose uh, between debt servicing and, of course, um, the social spending, such as on healthcare and on education. And of course, you know, limited healthcare spending became a problem during the pandemic, um, uh, for example. So the debt situation is very dire. It's very bleak. It's becoming more and more serious. Um, and it's definitely a topic that we should be discussing. So, you know, frequently when, when I read and, you know, me as, as a layperson kind of reading these accounts of, of the debt crisis, it's very difficult for me to see, you know, how, how we kind of got to this situation because the, you know, like frequently, particularly kind of some accounts that come from places like the Wall Street Journal, for example, would, you know, kind of would essentially take two lines, right? Kind of like one being either like, oh, evil China, they indebted this these poor countries and or, you know, frequently those work together or, oh, these feckless African countries who just can't stop borrowing. So, you know, what, what, are, what are some of the structural reasons that got that, that that took us from a situation where there had to be an external intervention into, you know, through the, the highly indebted poor countries initiative, you know, in, in the 2000s, to now where there's a debt crisis again? Like, you know, kind of why are African countries 
you know, kind of why do they find themselves repeatedly in this situation? Um, that's a very good question. And indeed, you've, I guess you've hit the nail on the head when you say it's very strange that history seems to repeat itself. Um, and indeed, the narrative, um, in my view, is mostly that we have, um, I guess, uh, evil debtors, <laughs> if I can call them that. Um, so leaders that do not care about their people, um, that create a situation where their, their country is over-indebted and that these debts are not used for the benefit of the people. Now, of course, to an extent, that's definitely true in certain contexts. But even prior to um, the HIPIC, African countries that had just... Um, uh, come out of uh, colonialism um, and that wanted to develop did indeed overborrow. But not only did they overborrow, but there's also external factors that impacted them um, economically. And even beyond that, we, we cannot deny the impact of uh, programs such as the structural adjustment programs, which also have been credited um, for impacting um, African countries in a very negative uh, manner. Uh, when we look at the issue of um, the current debt landscape, um, and of course there's the big question of um, the Chinese loans, so the question is, is you know, China um, uh, sinking Africa into more debt? Um, that's part of the common narrative, but the reality is that in about the 2000s, um, Africa's debt um, profile uh, started to change and there was a greater interest, or at least opening up of capital markets. So while countries like South Africa have had a rich history of um, issuing sovereign bonds, for example, um, uh, Seychelles, I believe in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, the first country to issue a sovereign bond other than South Africa. And after that, it was almost like a watershed that the issue, um, issuing of sovereign bonds became quite a preferred option when it comes to uh, borrowing. And we also do have the presence of new bilateral creditors uh, such as, as, as China as well. In this landscape, many people have made the point that that the HIPIC initiative, so that was the highly indebted poor countries initiative um, of the 2000s, was r relatively simple to arrange because the the number of of debtors or the number the number of of, um, of lenders were were relatively contained, and they were you know kind of and, and and a lot of that debt was was concentrated in traditional multilateral lenders like the World Bank. Now we have a much more diversified lending landscape including, you know, kind of a lot of African, as you pointed out, a lot of African countries taking out euro bonds um, and other of these these kind of um, instruments. Um, what, how does that shift the dealing with the debt process? Like, you know, kind of how, like, what, what does a default look like in, in this case? And, and, and what does debt restructuring look like? The big change that um, this very diverse creditor landscape uh, results in is that restructuring is much more complex. So as you mentioned, during HIPIC, we were really focusing on um, the official sector debt. That's a multilateral and bilateral. And of course, African countries also had major um, commercial debt as well. But these were um, owed to commercial banks um, that would restructure through the London Club restructuring. So right now, things are much more complicated. Um, we have diverse creditors. 
We have traditional um, creditors being your Paris Club, bilateral creditors, as well as multilateral institutions, whom we have had a long history of restructuring with. But we also have these newer creditors, as you've mentioned, we've spoken about China. Um, Another example of a newer creditor could probably be uh, Turkey, for example. And even beyond that, we have the private sector creditors. And when you look at the most recent initiatives by the G20, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, and and currently we have the Common Framework, the big elephant in the room, at least in the beginning of the discussions, was um, what do we do about Chinese debt as well as private sector debt? Um, Of course, I believe that there's been a lot of focus on the discussion on uh, China's lending and not enough focus on the private sector debt, which is becoming a very large portion of the continent's um, uh, debt profile. Now, how does it make restructuring more complex? Um, In my view, the biggest issue is really creditor coordination. So with bonds, you have potentially um, thousands, tens of thousands of, of, of creditors. And the question is, in our agreements, how have we provided for creditor coordination? How do we bring these creditors to the table? Is it only is it really only uh, voluntary, for example? And that really depends on on the terms of of the debt instrument. But others, um, other experiences in other regions, for example, um, ex- uh, previous experiences in Argentina have demonstrated the challenge of restructuring uh, bond debt. It's my understanding that the fiduciary laws in the United States and the United Kingdom, which governs most of the euro bonds that are owed by African borrowers, makes it impossible for them to simply cancel the debt because they have to get the permission from all of their stakeholders in order before they have to do a vote. And there's so many thousands of people who have a little bit of a mutual fund here, a little bit of a pension fund there, that it's technically impossible to get a vote on all these things. So if that's the case, if the fiduciary laws have not changed a bit, is it even possible for the private creditors to cancel or reschedule that debt? That's a very good question. I personally have mixed feelings about the issue of debt cancellation itself and the impact that cancelling debt may have. But definitely it is clear that African countries do need debt restructuring and broad-based restructuring that goes beyond um, a debt standstill that the DSSI, for example, offered. Now, you've mentioned the fiduciary laws, but a key point um, of the statement that you just made was that there has to be agreement between bondholders. So going back to the question of what are the legal provisions in debt instrument, the question is, how do we reach collective um, action? How do, um, how do we uh, make a decision as bondholders? Is there a need for an anonymous vote? Or could you, for instance, have a supermajority? Um, and looking at the lessons that I guess uh, South American experience has, has shown, especially the Argentinian experience, um, that indeed you can work around uh, creditor coordination when you, for instance, have collective action clauses um, that are, po- are potentially aggregated across different issues of bonds, for example. So it kind of goes back to how do we contract, um, uh, how do we negotiate? And in a way, it takes us, at least in the African context, it takes us to the issue of capacity to contract and capacity to have the right contractual terms as well. 
are we heading towards an, another kind of structural adjustment process in, in Africa? Like the previous one under under the IMF and the World Bank was in, in many African countries really ruinous. Um, and, you know, I recently read that that part of the part of the Zambian um, debt renegotiation process which is happening now is a, a, another kind of round of kind of, quote, business-friendly refor- reforms. Um, and I remember from reading C.K. Lee's work, you know, that she made the point that that, that previous kind of like business-friendly reforms in Zambia essentially almost wiped out the tax base. Um, so, so I was wondering you know, whether there even is space for further of these kind of like structural adjustment programs in Africa and where, or whether there's any kind of other option? Well, the structural adjustment programs is a very touchy subject because they were a failure and they led to more harm than good. And that's, I guess, a point that's generally been agreed on. So if it is true that we are in a way slipping towards a structural adjustment program, it wouldn't be intentional and it wouldn't be <laughs> called a structural adjustment program. But definitely the issue of conditionality, which I guess African countries are very sensitive about, um, definitely always comes up. Um, I'm not sure whether it would only be business friendly. I would imagine that um, if conditionality had to be attached, it would be maybe climate related, governance related and, and so forth. I don't think so, Kobus, because in order to implement structural adjustment programs or SAPs, that usually has to come from a singular entity like the IMF or possibly the World Bank. But as Magali pointed out, there's such a diversity of creditors here, and they don't agree on anything, because the agenda of the Chinese is not at all aligned with the agenda of the bondholders, is certainly not aligned with the Paris Club, and the U.S. and the Chinese hate each other. So getting them to agree on a unified structural adjustment program seems downright impossible to me. Maybe. I mean, just, you know, Magali, just, just kind of, in the, I mean, that those were those issues were all true in the case of Zambia. And I do think Zambia is moving in that direction, but we'd have to see. We haven't seen it work, though, in Zambia. It's too early to tell. That hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and, and I think the important point that you bring up here is really about global coordination on some of these um, economic issues. And it maybe leads me um, also to our article where we, we were um, speaking about a unified approach or a more comprehensive approach to debt restructuring. And one of the main challenges to having a comprehensive approach is definitely political will and also uh, global coordination, which seems to be lacking. Speaking about about the, the article, it's, like, it's really fascinating reading. And so so I wonder if you could talk us through, you, you, you provide kind of broad kind of recommendations to to improve you know the, the debt sustainability you know kind of landscape in Africa as a whole what are what are some of the key recommendations that that that, that you make so basically the key recommendations that we make in this article and I should um, point out that our um, our essay is actually based or, or focuses on a book that um, Dan, uh, Daniel Bradlow and I recently co-edited called COVID-19 and Sovereign Debt, The Case for SADC, um, where we were really exploring um, what does this current landscape in the region look like? Um, how did we get here? Uh, why does it matter and where are we going? Um, we had contributions from about 18 or so authors uh, that really provided different uh, perspectives that have different experiences and that come from different um, disciplines. But from assessing all of the contributions they made, we came up with five main recommendations. Um, and, And maybe before listing them, I'll mention the fact that 
the approach that we took in the book was to marry the issue of sovereign debt restructuring to um, debt management and governance, because those two issues really can't be separated. Separated. We can't just speak about when things go wrong. We also have to look at how do we actually incur our debt obligations. Um, so from, from the assessments that Daniel Bradlow and I conducted, we came up with three broad recommendations. Um, the first one relates to, of course, the need for enhanced transparency. And maybe I sound like a broken record because transparency is a buzzword. Um, the second one, um, another buzzword, but a very important one, is the need for good governance when it comes to national debt management policies. Uh, we give um, a recommendation of legal predictability, and that's taking us back to uh, the contractual provisions of the different instruments that we enter into. Um, the tricky question of comparability, uh, comparability of treatment was our fourth recommendation. So we can't really deal with debt without looking at comparability of treatment between the different creditors. And finally, and maybe the most controversially, is the fact that we are advocating for a comprehensive approach um, to debt management and restructuring. And I guess the controversy might be on the restructuring part. Um, and I'd be happy to take you through each of, of, of these recommendations. Let's do it. Let's start with transparency, because that is obviously relative to the Chinese, a very important issue. But it's not just the Chinese, as we've heard from so many different experts who we've talked to on this show, who say that the clauses in the Chinese contracts, while they are oftentimes more extreme, are by no means outliers in the world of debt. And in many instances, they are using either Swiss commercial law or UK commercial law, which have these non-disclosure clauses built into the contracts across the board. So if that's the case and the governments have signed on to these non-disclosure agreements, where does the transparency come from? In Kenya, just this past week, an amazing thing that we talked about in our last episode, the High Court of Mombasa required the government to publish the contracts for the standard gauge railway and insisted that whatever clauses were signed in those contracts were not above constitutional law and were not above the procurement laws. But yet it was the government, two ministers and the attorney general, who were insistent on not revealing that. So this transparency issue oftentimes is put on the shoulders of the creditor, but oftentimes the borrower is just as complicit in this. So if you could walk us through this issue of debt transparency and what you and Danny recommend. So when it comes to the issue of transparency, as I mentioned previously, it's kind of like a popular word. Everyone speaks about transparency and it's almost thrown out as an accusation, um, usually against um, Chinese lending. And I think the reason why Chinese lending indeed attracts that criticism of the fact that it's opaque, there's a lack of transparency, is indeed these confidentiality clauses. Um, now, you've correctly mentioned that governments have signed on to these um, agreements, but, um, and of course, this is my personal opin opinion, couldn't we also argue that there could be power imbalances when it comes to negotiating debt agreements, especially when we're looking at African countries that have traditionally been debtors uh, negotiating with other countries, it could be China, it could be any other um, institution or, or country. So um, I personally believe that there sometimes are power imbalances that could result in certain clauses that could impact transparency. Can you explain what you mean by power imbalances? 
especially in the private creditor context. When I'm speaking about power imbalances, I'm speaking more in the bilateral and multilateral context. African countries negotiating with um, uh, with with bilateral creditors, but the reality is, uh, when it comes to Chinese lending, um, some of them are um, generally by you know uh, development banks and and, and other commercial um, institutions, and many of these are not really traditionally bilateral lending, but are lending that could be linked linked to projects like in terms of uh, project finance and um, and and even public private partnerships and and so forth. And often at commercial rates and commercial terms, even though it's done by a policy bank. Exactly, exactly. Now, when it comes to the issue of transparency and maybe a power imbalance, and of course, I will make a disclaimer. This is my personal uh, personal view, and not really the views that we expressed in the book. Uh, but I feel that even in a commercial context, because of the continent's um, need for infrastructure development and because we have traditionally been uh, debtors, uh, in most instances, in most cases, there isn't an equal negotiating um, uh, uh, balance between uh, debtors and creditors uh, generally, even in a commercial context. Um, of course, this is a personal view. Uh, probably more research needs to be done um, in, the, in this area when it comes to uh, power imbalances, because that could also be an issue of perception. Yeah. Could I just challenge you a little bit on that? Please do. Uh, again, just in the spirit of, of discussion here. But uh, John Magafuli, the late president of Tanzania, he, he famously told the Chinese off and said only a drunkard would take these terms for the port of Bagamayo. And, and and it was a great example of an African leader pushing back on those terms. Is it a little bit of a cop-out to say that there's a power imbalance? Because Director General Wu Peng, who's the top Chinese diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa, he made the point a couple of months ago that said China never put a gun to anybody's head in Africa to take any of these loans. No one forced them at all to do anything. They oftentimes, and what we're finding out, did not come to the negotiating table well-prepared they did not come necessarily with spending on expensive lawyers the same way the Chinese did. They oftentimes didn't even read through the contracts, as we found out in the Congo holdup investigation in the DRC. So in terms of saying power imbalance, it does allow for the African side to kind of have a cop out instead of saying, well, you're going to play in the big leagues with the Chinese in terms of these expensive lawyers and these big debts. You got to come and you got to be well prepared. And know when to walk away, as Magafuli did. I think you're making a very interesting point. And if I could push back as well, <laughs> um, I, maybe we have to go back to how are we defining a power imbalance. So I think many times when we discuss power imbalance, maybe there's a view that um, this relates to some sort of coercion or force. Sometimes a power imbalance can arise, as you've rightly pointed, from, for instance, a lack of capacity, for example. Um, so for part of my career, I've been you know, uh, working closely with governments, even as a government official. And the reality is that the lack of capacity um, of African governments is really a point that doesn't feature much in the debates when we speak about debt contracts, when we speak about, um, you know, restructurings and so forth. And so, you know, the structure of government institutions um, and, and of course, sometimes the imbalance, um, like you said, not reading agreements um, 
that is a major uh, flaw when you're going to a negotiating table. But sometimes um, you'd have situations, at least what I've experienced um, as a former government official, you'd have situations where you have very limited time, um, you have uh, very uh, few staff and so forth. So maybe we need to explore what power balance or equality really means from a broader context. From that perspective of, you know, of these very real constraints that, that African government officials face, how should we then go you know, about to, to implement your second recommendation, which is around good governance? Just from reading the, the situation in, in, in South Africa, for example, um, you know, from the outside, it seems like, like one of the problems that South Africa has had over the last, the last few years has been a, a, a simultaneous erosion of, of capacity, um, you know, kind of among, among the kind of rank and file of, of, of government officials, while at the same time, you know, kind of there's also this kind of weaponization of a certain level of capacity in a, in a corrupt context, which is specifically the situation in South Africa, like via the, the kind of infiltration of, of uh, you know, these, these kind of institutions that were supposed to be uh, functioning as checks and balances on government power, those have, over, under the Zuma era um, in South Africa, they were kind of gradually infiltrated and captured um, and, you know, and, and then kind of stopped doing their job. So I was wondering, you know, kind of within within a situation of, of, of generalized kind of like overstretchedness and, and kind of and, and low capacity at, at the same way where, you know, kind of in, and where there's also a kind of a minority of of officials that are actually in it for for their own personal gain, how does one actually manage that good governance? I think you're raising a very important question, and and I guess maybe the first um, thing I can mention is the fact that transparency on its own can't exist without good governance. And I think if you really look at our recommendations, we step away from a blame game. Say, say, so for instance, saying you know China is the enemy or African governments are the enemy, but just acknowledging that there are challenges on almost all sides. Now, when it comes to good governance, definitely transparency. Um, um, can only really be successful when there is, um, uh, you know, debt management that is um, not only governed by like a principle of good governance, but really also participation in accountability. So we can't really um, separate good governance from participation in accountability. And that takes us back to look for solutions inwards within our African countries. So looking at our debt management systems and really creating laws and processes that are, that are participatory, accountable, uh, and so forth. And, and maybe a, another example, in addition to the South African example that you've mentioned where state capturing, you know, is, is really a hot topic, is really also Mozambique, for example, that uh, really highlighted the challenges of um, not only transparency, but good governance when it comes to how we actually accumulate our debts. So in a way, our recommendations are not just saying that solutions needs to be found externally to Africa's uh, debt challenges, but really part of the solution has to be internal, um, looking at our, you know, um, our uh, management, fiscal responsibility and, and so forth. And, and maybe this point was also echoed, um, I think, last year uh, by the president of the African Development Bank. So on one hand, he was... Um, he was advocating uh, for, um, you know, another debt jubilee, <laughs> which is debt forgiveness. Um, 
Uh, so that was one point he made. But another point he made was that we really have to um, go back and uh, really look at the broad governance reform. Um, and he was talking about uh, uh, eliminating leakages in public funds, um, ad, uh, advancing or promoting domestic resource mobilization as well as transparency. Um, so a lot of work needs to be done when it comes to the debt management uh, landscape of many African countries, such as Mozambique and such as um, we've mentioned South Africa. These are just two uh, examples. It's interesting because as you look at your five recommendations that you and Danny came up with, none of them feel like they can stand on their own. Many feel that they're intertwined or interdependent on one another. So when I look at this uh, number four that you have, comparability of treatment, which is what you guys write, ensure that where needed restructuring of sovereign debt is conducted with all creditors participating on comparable terms. Well, that relies on good governance, and that also relies on transparency. Because as we saw in Zambia, the private creditors said, listen, I don't want you to cut a deal with the Chinese, and then I take a bigger haircut than they do. And so it required everybody to put their cards on the table. But the problem was that the Chinese insisted at least up until recently, on these non-disclosure agreements, that they were willing to take a cut, but they didn't want anybody else to know about it. And so that then comes back to the good governance question in terms of forcing these issues either by law or by persuasion or whatever it is. So it, it of the five recommendations, are all of them as an integrated package or can they be done piecemeal one by one? Or if they only get three out of the five, will that be sufficient? In my view, they come as a package. I definitely feel that, for example, transparency on its own is one cornerstone that without which the whole foundation would crumble. Uh, so I don't think we can really separate them. And I think the reason why you can't have like one big solution is because there isn't one big problem. We have a series of problems that require um, that they be addressed from very different angles and different perspectives. So, for example, if you have transparency and you say good governance is not an important feature, you can't really have transparency without good governance. And the reality is that to promote good governance and even transparency, you need to have legal predictability. And legal predict predictability requires you to strengthen your contractual, uh, contractual provisions. And of course, um, even in the, as we've seen from recent initiatives by the G20, comparability of treatment is such an important feature that different classes of creditors are going to seek. Um, and the reason why, um, I guess, comparability of treatment is so important is because we have a very diverse creditor landscape. And then, of course, is the final question of how do we have a holistic approach to some of these um, issues? And of course, this really requires some form of uh, global coordination as well as efforts done locally as well. In relation to the legal predictability, it's, it's, it's a very interesting point for me. And, you know, so, so what, what we've seen in, in discussions with some other debt experts is I've, people have, have mentioned that, that frequently, you know, the Chinese nego negotiator, negotiators um, coming in to discuss, you know, for example, a, an infrastructure deal would come in with legal teams from, from Western law firms. 
Um, and you know, and, and then frequently the the kind of African teams find themselves kind of out negotiated because they don't necessarily have the same they they can't draw on the same kind of depth of of, of expertise on their side. So if one has if one could in some kind of way you know um, furnish African negotiators with with um, you know a more muscled up kind of kind of legal backing, um, which kind of how would that change the the contracts? Like which kind of aspects do you think African African negotiators should be should be fighting to get into the contracts? Okay, so I'll just give uh, one example. So, for example, when it when we're looking at because all of these agreements are different depending on who um, the creditor is. When we're looking at um, uh, privately held debt, for example, collective action clauses. So, ensuring that we have aggregated collective action clauses, and many of the bonds that uh, we issued, especially those um, before um, Argentina was facing uh, uh, challenges in in, in the mid two thousands. Um, or at least in, in, in about 2012 or so, uh, did not have collective action clauses and others do not have collective action clauses that are ag- aggregated across, um, uh, across different issues of bonds. If we're looking at agreements that really relate more, um, uh, that are more resource-linked, um, uh, maybe a question is how how are these um, agreements collateralized? So I'm thinking more of like resource-backed loans. Um, uh, When it comes to project finance, I would be, and and also maybe public-private partnership agreements, I would be curious to see uh, the type of contingent liabilities that uh, the agreements uh, result in, for example. So these are just a few examples, very different um, contractual provisions or clauses or different areas in different um, agreements. If you guys would like to hear more about what Magali is thinking on these issues, there are two articles that I would like to recommend. On our website at chinaglobalsouth.com, five recommendations for tackling the sovereign debt challenge in Southern Africa. She co-wrote that with Daniel Bradlow from the University of Pretoria. Also with Danny Bradlow, Debt Distress in Africa, Biggest Problems and Ways Forward. That is on the conversation. I'm going to put links to both of those in the show notes. Magali, this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for really enlightening us and really, again, thinking about practical solutions. What I like most about what you and Danny are doing is that these are not highfalutin, pie-in-the-sky solutions. They're very, very practically grounded. Uh, So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Kobus, I love Magali and Danny's focus on practical, pragmatic, solutions. And again, their recommendations are grounded. They're not pie in the sky, fanciful recommendations that are never possible. That being said, I am far more pessimistic and skeptical than either of them appear to be. I just don't know how you get to the coordination piece when Janet Yellen, which is the U.S. Treasury Secretary, is there screaming about the Chinese, and the Chinese are screaming about Janet Yellen, and the the G20 is not cooperating with, the Paris Club is not cooperating with the Chinese, and the IMF and the World Bank are complaining, and the G20 is not focused at all on debt relief. These debt restructuring issues have been pushed all the way to the back of the blind of the priorities, and to be fair, they have never been a priority for the G20. Never. 
They was a little bit in 2020 at the beginning of the COVID pandemic when they introduced the DSSI, which is the Debt Service Suspension Initiative. But that was it. After that, every meeting, it got pushed to the bottom of the list. And in fact, last year, one of the things that we noted in some of our coverage was they were literally copying and pasting the statements from the previous G20 meeting and just rolling it over into the next one. And they never talked about it. Now we have a situation where the U.S. says we're not even going to go to the next G20 meeting if Russia goes. And that the Chinese and the Americans at the previous one, which is the finance minister's meeting in Bali, were exchanging barbs. I mean, if we're counting on the G20 to get anything done, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. So in all of this, how does any African country get the standing to be able to assert themselves on these five recommendations? That's the part I can't see. For me, one of one of the greatest things that that Magali mentioned was that this isn't one big problem. This is a bunch of problems, and you know, they, so these these problems aren't just debt problems. They're problems of development in the first place, how to fund development. Um, the problems of how you know, if if one thinks of development as hooking oneself into the global economy, you know, which I think you know, kind of like some some economists would would you know take issue with that but that like if if one assumes that 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 is what development means um you know there's this then the problems of how to do that um but there's also these all of these other interrelated problems like for example how are these countries going to going to fund climate change mitigation for example so i think you know kind of with with all of that um you know what what one realizes is that that one of these problems may well be that we have a, a kind of a creditor bias. Um, you know that 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 we tend to look to creditors um, to solve these problems when it's not in their interest to solve them, um, and that we look at traditional creditor countries, which now includes China. You know, kind of as the first place the first port of call in order to discuss these things like with the G20 for example which again you know you know kind of knowing the G20 is probably not realistic so you know so, so one of the things that we then have to talk I, I think you know part of the part of what one of the things we need to talk about then is how to flip the situation and you know there you know kind of I think one one has to come back to to recommendations that that people like Hannah Ryder for example have made um, calling for for a kind of a borrowers club like like much much stronger coordination between different global south borrowers and in that sense I think Africa you know look uh, you know Africa is weak in many aspects but but one of the things that Africa is actually relatively strong in is that it has a more robust kind of um, continental institutions decision making institutions than say latin america um you know we we've seen you know like comparisons that i've read between latin america and africa have made the point that 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 you know africa has the has the kind of bare bones for some kind of unified kind of direction setting um and you know kind of so so that kind of pulling together you know a, a unified group of of borrower countries would be a, a necessary step, you know, to develop the what 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 has now been, you know, many people have have, have called um, the the new non-aligned movement, which we we discussed with <clears throat> Jorge Heiner a while ago. Um, you know, so so the the question is for a new non-aligned movement is if you move beyond what you're not aligned with, what are you aligned on? 
Like what 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 are these countries? What are these the shared preoccupations of these countries? I think funding development would have to be one. Surviving climate change would have to be another. Um, and you know, kind of, and finding the money to do both of those things is is an important third. So you know, so in that sense, I think that. You know that that's it's 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 not a satisfying answer because it'll take a billion years to do, um, but at the same time, you know it's it's one of these kind of like pervasive cross-cutting crises that are like affecting countries in Africa and beyond, and it's one of those situations where you can't let a crisis go to waste. You know, kind of like the crisis we're in at the moment indicates so many weaknesses in the global system, not least weaknesses that are sitting with bodies like the G20. You know, kind of, so in that sense, like it would have to be some kind of like Southern initiative, but, you know, kind of, I don't know what that would be. I think at this point, that's fanciful, because if that would have happened, it would have been, it would have happened by now. And I just don't see again why a country like Nigeria, who historically has never played well in the pan-African context for the most part. I mean, it was the last to sign up for the AFCFTA. It, it doesn't see its interests aligned with that of Malawi or Algeria. It's acting on its own national interests, as most African countries are. Smaller countries like the idea of pan-Africanism much more than larger countries. But your own country has not played well in this regard as well, because that's the nature of bigger countries. They want to assert their agency and their agendas above the interests of others, which kind of makes sense because at the end of the day, all politics is local. And so making concessions in order to form this borrowers club doesn't seem like that's feasible. And again, we've talked a lot about these kind of coalitions coming together. Okay, let's say 10 countries came together. What's their leverage against the creditors? We're not going to pay back? Well, the creditors go fine. We're just going to slap you with ratings downgrades. We we might be jumping several steps here, right? Kind of like because in the first place, I think it, it's kind of premature to talk about which kind of concessions they would make, considering that they're not even exchanging information. But they would have to make moment. concessions to work together as a group. That by definition has to yes, happen. Yes, but before but before that, they would they would first have to have a conversation about what they actually actually would like to okay. work together. Okay, on. so that kind of proves my point that they're not even at the conversational stage. Because it's too difficult to do that. It's too difficult, but also, like, remember, like, these, you know, we, we're off 20 years of growth in Africa, right? Um, so I think that one, one of the illusions, I think, of growth is the illusion that, that it is kind of like each country in, you know, kind of f for itself. Um, and that, you know, and that, that they are, you know, that, that each country can, can do better for itself on its own in the international financial system than they, they can necessarily do together. Like any kind of collectivity would come from crisis, right? Kind of so, so, so in, in that sense, like the the crisis at the moment is a kind of a rips the veil off the kind of global economic system as well, um, and therefore the you know kind of like my, my point is that that this current crisis is kind of re resetting priorities, um, and that you know and then that 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 might be a place to start from. But I, I agree with you that that there's no there's no like set agenda, there's no set of countries that would necessarily lead none of this stuff exists right kind of all of this is, is very kind of like very pie in the sky but the, the 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 reality is is that i think particularly if one if one puts the current crisis if you don't just look at the current crisis on its own but if you put it in the context of the wider kind of like systemic 
set of crises that is climate change, then like climate change is such a radical crisis, it's such a, a massive crisis that it, it throws the very concept of the world economy into doubt, right? So it it um, it therefore like then offers this opportunity to rethink how these countries can act as a collective, which is not to say that, the, you know, kind of, which is not to, in, in any way kind of like suggesting that that would be successful. It's just what I'm saying is that, is that it, it so radically rewrites what we think of as reality, even economic reality, that it then opens up these kind of options for, for, for rethinking things radically. But you're speaking from the point of view as a victim of climate change, and I understand that. You are on the receiving end of the horrifying consequences of it. But when you're sitting in India, China, and the United States, people aren't talking about that the same way at all. In China, no, they want to have... They're talking about it in India now. <laughs> like, well, they're talking about it in India, but still, <laughs> India, they're so big. Its output of, of, of emissions is just enormous. And same with China. I mean, China's, I don't know what the number was now. I mean, just how many gigawatts of coal power are they bringing online now, especially now when their economy is running into problems? And the fact that China still is investing heavily in consumption, the same kind of things that have plagued the United States and, and Western societies for so long, and just having stuff, 3,000 square foot homes that need to be air conditioned and filled with stuff. So, uh, you know, I don't see, for example, in the United States, you know, despite all the highfalutin talk about, you know, sustainable development, the Ford F-150 is still the, the most popular car in the U.S., and Americans don't show any inclination whatsoever to changing their lifestyles in the name of climate change. None. In fact, the Republicans, you know, again, we've talked about this on previous shows, the, the first thing they're going to do when they come back into power into the executive branch is they're going to pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. They don't give a crap. Yeah. And I think the, the, the more no, that course. we I mean, acknowledge you, you, that, the more we can get down to the reality that, you know, the poor are going to get crushed and the rich are going to hold on as long as they can and then isolate themselves as much from the poor as possible. Sure, like, you know, kind of, I, 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 do, I do, I see your point, but that's also, that's not a conclusion, right? It's like, oh, well, goodbye, poor, you know. It's not like, a conclusion, but it's just, it's kind of the way things are going just, now. It's, in the first place, that's not, that's not realistic because, because, you know, kind of like whatever, whatever kind of like, like the, the, the kind of situation that the kind of crisis we, we're heading towards will take everyone down, right? Kind of, and I mean, you know, so some people like the Joe Mansions of the world can fool themselves about that, but that doesn't change the reality. Um, but the, but the point I'm making is more, more fundamentally that, that this, you know, whatever, whatever kind of like collectivity I'm talking about, and, and, and again, I, I acknowledge this is very pie in the sky, but like whatever collectivity I'm, I'm talking about fundamentally, is has to be southern, right? Like it has to come from from it has to come from the south. So it, it fundamentally already excludes the United States, you know, kind of and, and other similar countries because because they they are so beholden to their current system, um, you know. So any kind of renewal will have to will have to come from from the countries that that want to gain something, not the countries that want that are clinging to to the riches they already have. Um, and again, you know, kind of I I realize hundred percent realize that, and you are right to kind of shoot this down. But I but I don't think that there really is any other option than simply you know kind of like because because the the, the other option the the the, you know, the one that's implied in 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 what you've been mentioning is essentially then like you know kind of like simply you know kind of like mass suicide essentially right kind of like it's this kind of like thing of like well goodbye you know why can't we acknowledge that because that's what we're doing that's exa i don't disagree with you we're not on opposite ends of this 
But this is what's happening, though. But in that in that sense, that's not suicide, right? It's mass homicide. But that's it's, what's happening. That, that is that is a, a you know a, a violent assault by the global north on the global south, and you know and. And that is what's happening, but then one can't then assume that uh, we can't. One can't assume a passive global south there, right? Kind of like like one one you know kind of what was what we what we've seen in the twentieth century was an active global south, even as they were being undermined left and right. Yeah, you know. So so in that sense, one has to I think look for what the activeness is going to be, um, and there I think it lies in the as yet unarticulated, the kind of un, the unstated. You know, that's where it will lie. We know what is going to happen already because you and I have been told by a number of the people we've spoken to that when the fish stocks in in the Gulf of Guinea run out and in West Africa run out, we talked to all of those folks in the NGO sector. They're saying people are going to walk where there's food, right? They're going to start moving and they're going to start fighting. It's going to be far more chaotic. And the other thing that's interesting is when we look at where the aid money is going to go, just this past week, the United Kingdom reformatted its aid programs, and those are not friendly to the Global South by many people's definitions. The United States had no problem, by the way, of putting up $40 billion to pay for weapons to go to Ukraine. So for war, we can mobilize super fast. We're really optimized to get $40 billion through the system very quickly to get weapons to a war zone. But we have shown no inclination to do that for the issues that you're talking about. So mass suicide, mass homicide, I don't know what you want to call it, but it does feel like we're driving over a cliff. That's the only way I can see it. And nobody gives a flying poop about, you know, what, you know, what that we're going to do about it, at least in the global north. They'll talk a good game all they want, but at the end of the day, their consumption and their, their, their pollution is still just feeding it all, right? I mean, and I, I don't know where the leverage comes in. The le- where does the Global South leverage come in? Them getting together in some kind of new non-aligned movement, who cares? Where's the leverage in, in to say, I'm going to put a gun to your head the same way you put a gun to my head? Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think the one, the one kind of like one of one of the few, I think, weapons that the global South has, and this is this, I think, is a is a is a potent weapon, but but it it, it would take a lot of coordination to do it to make to never do well, is simply to withdraw the legitimacy that the global North enjoys, and and we see that that the global North in lots of ways the legitimacy is actually quite fragile, right? Kind of like what what one sees, for example, simply the 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 situation in in the Solomon Islands like one little one little kind of government decision um, you know to 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 kind of to have a security pact you know with China is scrambling you know right through the you know through Australia through you know through all of these global north countries you know kind of so so much of so much of global north legitimacy depends on simply convention you know, so so in that sense, the like like the an active attack on global north legitimacy, I think, is is a potential tar- is a potential tactic, but it will always be a tactic. It's not a strategy, right? Kind of like it, it's 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 something that comes from below. It's something that's ad hoc, um, and and that's the only option I think the global south has. But if that's what you're counting on, I think that's outdated thinking. I don't think Donald Trump gives two flying f's about the global south legitimacy. Viktor Orban doesn't care. Marine Le Pen couldn't care less of what people in Africa think of her. Uh, you know, Xi Jinping, I don't think, cares that much. 
Yeah, but it's 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 because they're sitting on a pile of money that was built up by global by by this kind of like con, like legitimacy. Fair enough, but these this new generation of populist leaders don't care about that. Those countries can't can't survive on their own. They need the rest of the world. Even the U.S. can't survive on its own. Well, they think they can. That's the nature of America first, and that's a real thing. Yeah, and they'll think it for another 15 years, and then they realize it, you know? It's like, you know, kind of, sure, they can think it now, but, you know. Try telling that to J.D. Vance, who's running for the Senate, who says, I don't even care about Ukraine, much less care about Africa. My point here is that I think these new, this new generation of populist leaders that are rising, including China's, those considerations are secondary, absolutely secondary. He didn't care about the UN. He didn't care about the European Union. Donald Trump, when he was in office, he didn't care about NATO. None of that stuff. And if he didn't care about the Europeans, remember, he called Africa, you know, shithole countries. Yeah, but remember, that's not a sign of strength. That's a sign of decline. Fair enough. But you're saying that if you're going to take their legitimacy away, then they're going to be without something and that's going to create leverage. I'm saying if they don't care, then taking it away doesn't really matter. Their not caring depends on the last vestiges of their power, which is waning very quickly. Fair enough. Let's leave it there. It's amazing that after 12 years, Kobus and I can still have these conversations like this. Oh, God. It's, uh, you know, we got to, you know, I, I just find that remarkable. So anyway, speaking of 12 years, we are embarking on our new chapter in our journey together. It is no longer the China Africa Project. It is the China Global South Project. We hope that you will come and check out our coverage of what China is doing throughout the developing world, throughout the Global South. Africa, of course, is going to remain at the core of what we do. So you'll come to our site, you'll receive our newsletter, you'll listen to these podcasts. Not a whole lot is going to change. But one of the things that we're going to do is to start looking at what's happening here in ASEAN, for example, in Southeast Asia, what's happening in Tajikistan, what's happening in South America, and trying to connect the dots and some of the strings and, and, and really pull those across so that we might be able to see trends that are right now not visible. So we hope that you'll check it out. We hope that you'll subscribe as well, chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. You'll get a newsletter every day. You'll get full access to our website with Three to 4,000 articles now in the archive, 700 podcasts. We've got transcripts of the podcast, so many great things on the site. But more importantly, you'll be supporting a team of Global South journalists. All of us are in the Global South reporting on the Global South from the Global South. That makes us different from everybody else in this space. And that the our team is from Cape Town to Cairo. We've got an editor in China. I'm out here in Southeast Asia. And we are just so proud of this great team that's putting together all of the work every day. And we really do appreciate your support and need your support. So if you subscribe or support us on Patreon, that would be great. Links are all in the show notes. Let's leave the conversation there. I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. So for Kobus van Staden, Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>